0: Let's open up now in our Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 1. You will notice that I didn't say the book of Revelations. That is because there is no book of Revelations. There is the singular revelation of Jesus Christ. I had to get that pet peeve out of the way before we went any further. (laughs) Revelation chapter 1, starting in verse 9. We're going to be reading together. Hear the word of the Lord. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, "...saying, write what you see in a book, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow." His eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in the furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we do thank you for your living, supernatural, inerrant word. Lord, this good and precious, pure and perfect gift that you have given to us. We pray, Lord, that your spirit, by your word, would accomplish all of your good purposes in us today, that, Lord, dead hearts would live blinded eyes would see, your people would be comforted, encouraged, strengthened, called to righteousness, transformed evermore into the likeness of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And I pray for myself as I proclaim your word this morning, that the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, these words that we've just read are written by the Apostle John, John who walked with Christ, John, the beloved disciple of Christ, John who saw and even touched the risen Christ. But as he writes these words now, John is a prisoner. He tells us in verse 9 where he is writing from. He is writing from the island of Patmos. This is a volcanic, treeless, rocky little island, and John has been exiled there. He tells us why he's been exiled. He says it's on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And John, an old man as he writes these words, would have spent most of his time forced to do hard labor in the rock quarries there on Patmos. Now, by the time John is writing the book of Revelation, there's some, there's some debate about the date in which Revelation was written, but Whatever that date is, by the time John's writing, the gospel has spread through the whole province of Asia. Uh, Much of the rest of the Roman Empire, the gospel has made its way around. Many had believed. Many had become Christians. These these believers knew that before he had ascended into heaven, the risen Christ had made a promise that he would return, that he would establish then God's final kingdom. They knew that he had promised to never leave or forsake His people, but as they looked around at what was going on around them, and certainly as John, the beloved disciple, looked around at his environments, it did not seem like that was happening. Instead, the wickedness of the Roman Empire was increasing rapidly. Those who followed Jesus began to be persecuted. This persecution became intense under the Roman Emperor Nero. Nero was a savage monster an evil man, a beast of a man. Christians began to be put to death in the most vile and horrific ways. We won't go into those details because of the kids that are in the room. All while the Roman emperor is beginning to be worshipped as a god and the risen Christ seems uninvolved entirely in the situation. So it leads many to to whom John is writing to wonder what, what exactly is going on. What exactly is happening here? If Christ has risen from the dead, why does it look like evil is triumphing over good? Why does it look like the church is being, is being pressed so hard that we wonder if it will even survive? Does God care about any of this? Is he going to do anything about this kind of suffering? And maybe you've wondered the same things in your life. I mean, it's easy to hear about the persecution that went on with those early Christians and go, yeah, I could see something like that coming down the road. If Christ rose from the dead, why am I so depressed all the time? Why am I so frustrated? Why is my marriage such a mess if Christ has risen from the dead? Why do I feel so hopeless if Christ has risen and will never leave me or forsake me? Why is our culture falling apart if the risen Christ rules over all things? Why does it look like Satan is winning? Maybe you've had those feelings. Maybe you've had those questions. Maybe you had them as you walked into the door this morning. If you have felt this way or you feel this way right now, be encouraged. Here's the big idea of the message this morning. Because Christ has risen, we have absolutely nothing to fear. That's the message that we see here in Revelation chapter 1 verses 9 through 20, although we didn't read all the way to 20. We see these two things in particular. We see a vision of the risen Christ, and we see the command of the risen Christ. And Before we get into that, let me just give a little context. Look at verse 9 again. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So so Jesus had, had died on the cross at least a minimum of 30 years before these events. If you take the early date of the book of Revelation, it's been at least 30 years. After he died, he rose from the grave and ascended into heaven. And so what this means is this vision of Christ that John has is the vision of the risen Christ. That's why in verse 18, Jesus says, I died and behold, I'm alive forevermore. Now, a little literary context for the book of Revelation. This is important if we're going to understand this book. The book of Revelation contains several visions, and these visions are not meant to be interpreted literally. So, for instance, no one thinks the risen Christ literally has a sword coming out of his mouth, right? When, when we picture that we will see him face to face one day, we don't think, but not get too close on account of the sword. We understand that these are our visions, and we have, to, we have to be clear when we say we're not meant to take this book literally and the visions and images in this book because people go, hey, that sounds like liberalism. Is that what we're talking about here? You don't take the Bible literally? No, we take the Bible literally when it wants us to, and we don't take it literally when it doesn't want us to because that would be to abuse the text of Scripture. You tracking with me? So, so we don't take poems literally because of the genre of literature they are. We do take history books liter- literally because of the genre of literature that they are, and so we'll talk a little bit more about that in a little bit. Some, but some really bad interpretation of this book has come from that abuse. The the Revelation is the genre is called apocalyptic literature. We don't have this kind of literature anymore. It's an ancient kind of literature, and the apocalyptic genre is all about symbolic imagery. It's like political cartoons. So, so imagine uh, you saw a cartoon, and it had a donkey and an elephant. They're roughly the same size. They're standing eye to eye. They've both got some bruises. They got boxing gloves on and boxing trunks on. What, what's that supposed to represent? The political process, right? The Republicans, the Democrats, they're beating each other up. They're going toe-to-toe. Imagine 2,000 years from now, someone comes across this political cartoon and goes, apparently we're meant to believe these two creatures were the same size and they held boxing events between them. That literal interpretation would be an abuse of the meaning behind that imagery. Tracking with me? We have to keep that in mind when we, when we come to the book of Revelation. So like political cartoons, if you try to interpret this vision literally, you're going to miss the point entirely. This vision, vision is not meant to tell us what Jesus looks like. If we could just draw this, we'd have a pretty good idea. No, that's not the point of this. It's not meant to tell us what Jesus looks like. It's meant to tell us who Jesus is. That's what we need to know. So we can't get bogged down in the details in that way. The the idea is, what's the big picture? What's this trying to teach us here? With that in mind now, let's look at John's vision of the risen Christ. Verse 10, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then John describes in vivid imagery his vision of Christ. And what is it that we learn about the risen Christ from this vision? Well, several things. One, the risen Christ is present. There's such encouragement here. Look at verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest, The book of Revelation has a repeated pattern that goes through the whole book where John hears something and then he turns around and looks at what he just heard. And oftentimes what he hears and then turns around and looks at, what he sees is very surprising in light of what he hears. Sometimes he he hears a a lion, a mighty lion, and he turns around and sees a lamb. It's surprising what he sees. Well, what John sees this time when he turns is... The risen Christ standing in the middle of seven golden lampstands. Now, verse 20 tells us what those lampstands represent. These lampstands represented the churches. So he says, write a letter to seven churches, and then he stands in the middle of seven lampstands, and John says, those lampstands represent the churches. This letter is addressed to seven churches, and Jesus is standing in the middle Of those seven churches, and again, Revelation is a highly symbolic letter letter that is written. It's apocalyptic, and so the number seven symbolizes fullness. So these seven churches that John is writing to, they represent all the churches of Jesus Christ throughout all of history. Further, the book of Revelation is filled with Old Testament imagery. If we don't understand the Old Testament imagery in the book of Revelation, we're not going to understand what John's trying to tell us in this book. And so verses 12 and 13 borrow from the Old Testament picture of the role of priests. The priests had a vital job in Old Testament worship and part of what they were responsible for was to make sure that the lampstands in the temple never burned out. And so we see this priestly picture of Christ. Jesus, the true, the perfect high priest is the Lord of the church. He will not allow the lampstand of his churches to burn out. He will ensure that the lampstands of his church are always burning brightly for his glory in a dark world. Is that not encouraging? And notice where Jesus is standing. Our text says he's standing in the midst of the lampstands. He is standing in the middle of his churches. Now this is good news for us corporately. Jesus has never left his church. Jesus will never leave his church. Jesus is present in his church. We can trust his promises to us. The very gates of hell will not prevail against the church of Jesus Christ because Jesus is in our midst. When we gather corporately as the church like we're doing right now, one of the reasons that we keep the kids in here, even though it means occasional noise, is that we believe Jesus is standing in the midst of his church. That it's something supernatural that's happening when we gather together to worship corporately. But it's also good news for us individually and personally. If you are a member of the body of Christ, he is with you. All the time. At the end of the Great Commission, Jesus says to his people, Matthew 28, verse 20, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. I'm always amazed and challenged by the story of the 19th century English missionary Alan Gardner. 1851, he was shipwrecked with a number of other people on a remote little island off the tip of South America. And everyone in that group starved to death one by one, slowly. And Alan Gardner was the last one to die. They know that because they found his journal sitting next to his body as he documented what they experienced there. In his, his last journal entry, in his journal that lay next to his body as he died, he quoted Psalm 34, verse 10, the young lions suffer and want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good things. And then the very last words of Alan Gardner, recorded in his journal, said this, I am overwhelmed by the goodness of God. So here's a man dying of starvation. He's watched all his friends die horrible deaths around him. He is now all alone, far from home, no hope of survival. Death is moments away, and the last thing he writes is, I'm overwhelmed by the goodness of God. How can that be? How does he do that? Well, he does that because his life wasn't his treasure. Jesus was his treasure, he does that because he knew that God was with him. That he wasn't actually all alone on that island. No, no, no matter, friend, how hard your life is, no matter what struggle you're facing, even if you're starving and marooned on a deserted island, if you are a child of God, if you are a member of his church, if you are a member of the universal body of Christ, the risen Christ is present with you. Even in depression, even in pain, even in the loneliness, he is with you. He hasn't abandoned you. The risen Christ is present with us. That is such good news. It gets better, though. The risen Christ is king. Look at verse 13. In the midst of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe, with a golden sash around his chest. Jesus here is not only performing a priestly duty, he's dressed like a priest, But that's not the focus. The focus is this title. He's described as one like the Son of Man. And many of you, I'm sure, know this. Son of Man was Jesus' favorite self-designation in the Gospels. That's how he most often referred to himself as the Son of Man. It comes from the Old Testament. It comes from the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days, was presented before him. Daniel's vision here is a vision of the ascension of Christ. Forty days after Jesus rose from the grave, he ascended to the heavenly throne room. He appeared before his heavenly father here in Daniel, called the Ancient of Days. And in light of his resurrection, Daniel tells us his father gave to him a kingdom. Verse 14 of Daniel 7 describes this kingdom. To him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. which should not pass away in a kingdom and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Jesus' kingdom is a glorious kingdom, a universal kingdom made up of people from every tribe, every nation, every ethnicity, every people group. It's an eternal kingdom that will last forever. The risen Christ, the Son of Man, is ruling and reigning right now. Right now. It doesn't matter what we see with our eyes as we look out at the culture around us. This is what's true. Nero, Domitian who followed him, which, 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 who only escalated the evil, Stalin, Napoleon, Hitler have all come and gone. Barack Obama, Donald Trump, Joe Biden, America for that matter will come and go, but Christ's kingdom will last forever. He hasn't fallen off of his throne he hasn't been deposed. He hasn't become complacent. He is ruling over all things with power and authority, and he knows exactly what he's doing. Nothing can happen in all the universe unless he allows it. He is ruling to that degree. He is the ultimate sovereign. Because Jesus Christ rose from the grave, he is ruling over all things meticulously, and hear this, that means the events of your life. It means nothing is meaningless in your life. No detail is without meaning. No detail is separated from his good plan for you. This is such good news. And there's more. The risen Christ is wise. Verse 14, the hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. In this vision, the risen Christ has white hair, white like wool and snow. In in other words, his hair in this vision is a brilliant white. That's the the picture here. It's another reference to the Old Testament. Again, we're not supposed to hear this and think, so if I draw a picture of Jesus, I need to make sure the hair is white. Great, noted. You shouldn't draw a picture of Jesus, by the way. It's coming from the Old Testament. It's it's imagery, again, from Daniel 7. When the Son of Man approaches the Ancient of Days to receive his kingdom, we just read about from Daniel 7. Here's what he says in verse 9. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, and the wheels were burning fire. So in Daniel's vision, the Ancient of Days, God the Father has what color hair? White hair. The risen Christ in John's vision has white hair. Why? Because he's God. He's divine. White hair is the symbol of divine wisdom. The the risen Christ possesses divine wisdom to solve any problem. Paul says in Colossians 2 verse 3 that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Here's what that means for us. There's no problem that you or I may face that is too hard for the risen Christ. Isn't that good news? But I got better news for you than that. Because to talk about a problem being too hard for the risen Christ is a completely wrong way to even think about Christ. He never has to solve a problem. It's not just that he could solve all problems, he never has to solve a problem. Every detail of our lives is according to his eternal plan. His sovereign Plan. He knows the end from the beginning. He is causing all things to work for the good of his people. He is never reactionary. He is never reacting to some event that has happened in his creation. He is always in control. That's even better news than the fact that he's able to solve every problem. Next we see the risen Christ is the judge. Verse 14, the hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. This flame here, this this phrase, his eyes are like flames of fire, indicates his omniscience. Nothing escapes his notice. Nothing is hidden from his gaze. When when he looks at a man, and maybe you've had this experience. Have you ever met a person and they fooled you for a while, and then at some point you had this revelation, maybe by watching the things that they had done and putting the pieces together, where you say they were a fraud, they were a fake. No, Jesus sees through every facade. He knows the heart of a man. This makes him the perfect judge. Verse 15, his feet were like burnished bronze, refined in the furnace. His voice was like the roar of many waters. Bronze was one of the hardest materials of the day in the first century. So it was used for making weapons of war. The picture here is that Jesus will crush his enemies under his feet of Bronze. Psalm 110, verse 1, the Lord says to my Lord, again, and this, Peter reveals to us, this statement is made at the ascension of Christ, but it's it's prophesied here in Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand and take until I make your enemies your footstool. 1 Corinthians 15, 25, he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. That's what it means for his feet to be burnished bronze. The phrase then, his voice is like the roar of many waters, indicates great power. Maybe you've stood, you've stood by a roaring waterfall or a, or a roaring river, the kind of river you would dare not jump into, and you, you've heard that sound. That's what it's pointing to. Ezekiel 43, verse 2, Behold, the glory of God of Israel was coming from the east, and the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. Verse 16 says, in his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and its face was like the sun, shining in full strength. Now verse 20, if we had read that far, tells us the seven stars are, John says, the angels of the seven churches. There's a little bit of debate about what exactly that means. The angels of the seven churches. It's probably a reference to the pastors of the seven churches because John regularly addresses the angel of the church in his written letter that he sends out to those churches. It's the elders, the pastors of those churches. Angel just means messengers, and these elders, these pastors, were human messengers to the church from the Lord. It's also possible that this is a reference to literal angels, there's, there's an angelic being that is in some form of authority over this church. But whatever the case is, the point is this. Jesus controls and cares for his church. Not just his, his capital C church, the universal of all believers who have trusted in Christ. No, he cares for his specific churches. He knows who are his. They're in his hand, is the the image that we're shown here. He's holding them in his hand. The sword proceeding out of Christ's mouth, again, is symbolic. Most of us are very familiar with the sword symbology in Scripture. It's his word. Isaiah 49:2, he made my mouth like a sharp sword. Ephesians 6, verse 17, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Hebrews 4, 12, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and the spirit and the joints and the marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Revelation 19, 15, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of of God the Almighty. God's word searches hearts. God's word judges rebels. Christ will judge the world with his word and none will escape his judgment. In fact, in the book of Revelation, we see things that they sort of cycle and ramp up and it looks like there's going to be this major standoff, and, and the world even has this kind of picture, right? You hear about Armageddon, and you hear about these things, and it's this colossal battle between Jesus and Satan, the forces of evil and the forces of God, and it's this epic battle, and we hope things go the right way. When we read the book of Revelation, things ramp up, and it looks like this colossal war, and then like Jesus says something, and it's over. There's no epic battle to be found here because of this sword that comes from the mouth of the risen Christ. So we learn several things from John's vision. The risen Christ is present. The risen Christ is king. The risen Christ is wise. The risen Christ is judge. This is a glorious vision of the risen Christ. Powerfully demonstrates to us that Jesus Christ is alive and well. He has risen from the dead. He is clothed in power and majesty And glory, and John, as he writes this in the middle of oppression, exiled to a life of hard labor on the island of Patmos, John needed to hear this. What he writes, he needed to hear. What God was revealing to him in this vision, he needed to hear. He needed to see the glory of Christ, and friends, we need this. We need this too. I, I, I it's, it's striking the language that John uses here in verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in what? The tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. Why would we expect something different than that? If that's what we have in Jesus, the tribulation, the kingdom, the patient endurance, we should expect these things. That's why we need this vision of the risen Christ. But what should we do in light of this vision? That brings us to the second main point, the command of the risen Christ. The risen Christ commands John to do one simple but very challenging thing, and it's this. Fear not. Fear not. Verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. This, by the way, is what usually happens when people in Scripture encounter God. I would be remiss if I didn't mention that in all the heaven tourism books that make millions of dollars for their authors, that's never how they respond. You know the heaven tourism book? Someone claims to go to heaven and then they write a book about it and become millionaires. Only their words don't usually match up with what Scripture has revealed to us about heaven, those books. They never do this. They never fall down like they're dead. That's what they do in Scripture, though. I'm off my uh, soapbox goes on in verse 17, but he laid his right hand on me. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not. I'm the first and the last, the living one. I died and behold, I'm alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. What an amazing scene this is. The maker of the universe, the infinite one, the reigning one, reaches out with his right hand and touches John's shoulder. What compassion, what tenderness, what, what love Christ has for his own. And then he issues a command, fear not. Fear not. Why does he command this command to John? Fear not. Well, it's simply because he's alive and well. That's why Jesus Christ is alive and ruling. That's why he says, fear not. He says, fear not because I am the first and the last. In other words, he's eternal, completely sovereign over all of world history. The first and the last, these bookend statements, everything in between them, I am the Lord over all of that. So fear not. Fear not because he is the living one, because I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. There is no need to fear because Christ has died and rose again. Full atonement for our sins has been made, so we need not fear. Fear not because I have the keys of death and Hades. Keys indicate authority. Jesus has authority over death and Hades. Now Hades in scripture is the realm of the dead. I have authority over death and the realm of the dead. And so Jesus' death and resurrection prove that he has full authority over the realm of the dead. He has total authority over who lives and who dies, so we need not fear. You know that statement that Jesus made about his time not having been ready throughout the Gospels? We know the stories of how they Tried to kill him on numerous occasions, but couldn't do it. Tried to push him off a cliff, couldn't do it. Tried to stone him, couldn't do it. Why? Because Scripture needed to be fulfilled. They didn't have the power to kill Jesus. Well, see, Christian, nobody has the power to take your life from you Except for the precise moment that God has ordained for you. He has numbered our days, and no one has the power to thwart that. That doesn't mean we should take all of our walks down the middle of the road instead of the side of the road facing oncoming traffic so we see what's coming. We're not called to live recklessly, we're called to cherish life. But we need not fear because Christ has the keys. Since Jesus Christ rose from the grave, we have nothing, nothing to fear. So the risen Christ commands, John, fear not. The risen Christ commands you, Christian, fear not. What are you afraid of this morning? Where where do your anxieties lie? Maybe you're afraid that you'll be alone forsaken, despised, and rejected. Well, the risen Christ is present with you, so you need not fear. You'll never be alone. Maybe you fear that your life will spin out of control, leading to pain and misery because of things that are outside of your ability to control. Well, the risen Christ is the king who controls All things. There's no need for fear. Maybe you're afraid that your problems are just too complicated to solve. You can't untangle the knot that you've made of your life. You don't know the answers. You don't even know where to turn. Well, The risen Christ has wisdom to solve every problem that you face. But more than that, This isn't a problem that he even has to solve because his plans are good and wise and faithful. So you need not fear. Maybe it's that your enemies will triumph over you, making your life miserable. I can't tell you how many times in the last few months I've said to someone, what do you think it's gonna be like four years from now living in this country? And there's a certain kind of fear that wants to rise up in me. A certain kind of anxiety that wants to rise up in me about that, that says, I don't know what the future holds. I don't know what these people who hate God are going to do to me. Are you going to do to this world? The risen Christ is judge. So we need not fear. We can trust him to deal justly. And rightly, that those who do evil and those who hate him are not getting away with anything. We can trust him in all of this. We truly, friends, have nothing to fear. But more important than all of those things is this. The risen Christ has handled our greatest problem. See, there is, there is something to fear in this world. Verse 17, again, the second half says, he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, I'm the first and the last, the living one. I died and behold, I'm alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. Jesus through his life and death and resurrection has provided a way of escape for us from the powers of sin and death and hell. But this way of escape is only available to Christians to those who have trusted in him. If you are outside of Christ, you have great cause to fear every single thing we've talked about this morning and on top of all of it, the just wrath of God that will surely be poured out on your sin. Oh, you have great cause for fear. You should shudder in that fear. I pray that you will. I pray that in God's kindness to you right now, You'll be overwhelmed with that fear. So that you'll look to Christ. So that you'll run to him. This way of escape is only available to Christians. These promises, these truths, they're only only for those who trust in Christ. You, You must turn away from your sins, renouncing them. Humbly submit yourself before the Lord Jesus Christ. Only then can you experience the peace that comes from the blessing of who the risen Christ has revealed himself to be. And friends, if he has taken care of our greatest problem, the problem of our sin and the condemnation that our sin has has wrought, if he has taken care of that, we have nothing to fear ever. What could man do to us? If God has done that, No matter what we see happening in the world around us, we can trust Him. We can run to Him over and over again. Oh, we have reason to be joyful. We have reason to be filled with hope, knowing that the risen Christ lives and rules and reigns. Amen? Let's pray together. Almighty God, we rejoice in you. We rest in you. We find all of our hope in you on this Resurrection Sunday. We glory in the risen Christ. We glory in the revelation of who he is and what he has done and how he is caring for us even now. And we trust in him when our eyes can't see, when our minds can't conceive of your care for us, we trust in it. We stand on the truth of your word. Lord, I pray for those in particular who have not found redemption in Christ. They've not trusted in him. They are still in their sins. I pray, Lord, in your mercy, you would save them, even this morning, even right now, in this moment. By your spirit, you would call their name. You would give to them the gift of repentance, genuine repentance. You would give to them the gift of faith, saving faith, to trust in in the Lord Jesus Christ and His perfect and completed work. Lord, give them the words of repentance. Give them the words of faith to proclaim their trust in You. Lord, I pray for us that You would make us faithful, increasingly faithful, day by day. We would grow in our faithfulness. We would grow in obedience. We would grow in our love for You and our confidence and assurance in you, our God. I pray, Lord, that you would make us fruitful for your kingdom's sake, faithful, Lord, in our testimony to the world, steadfast in our commitment to live for you no matter what the world brings our way. Let us learn from the example of our brother John, who we've read from this morning, to live lives of faithfulness even to the point of death. We glory in you and your great salvation in Jesus' name, Amen.